Take your Bible, please, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. By the way, I'm also very excited to have uh, Ben and Kristen uh, joining us today. I've gotten to know them a little bit through Andre at some gatherings, and I just so appreciate their heart and their um, love for Jesus and uh, their commitment to the Lord and His commitment to them. Today, this year's two top teams from the American uh, Football Conference will square off on the gridiron while the top two teams from the NFC will do the same. Each winner from these two games will have earned the right to play in the upcoming Super Bowl. And the winner of that greatest of games will receive a championship trophy, the Lombardi Trophy, named after the legendary coach of the Green Bay Packers. Vince Lombardi reportedly began every season in much the same way. During training camp, he would gather his team and with, with football in hand, he would say, gentlemen, this is a football. Now obviously they played with a much larger football. This was the best we could find at short notice. If, if the real football was this size, perhaps even I could play in the NFL although I'd have to put on 100 pounds and a foot in height. Gentlemen, this is a football. And he'd talk about its size, its shape, its weight, about how it can be thrown, carried, and kicked. And then in much the same way, he'd gather the team and march them out onto the practice field and say, gentlemen, this is a football field. And he'd talk about its size, its shape, the dimensions, the rules of the game, and his interpretation on how the game was to be played. He did this every year. For Lombardi, winning football games was more than building a great staff, more than assembling great players, more than expecting those players to make great plays. For Lombardi, winning football games was, meant excelling in the fundamentals. Year after year, even after five championships and two Super Bowls, Coach Lombardi returned to the basics. And so, dear East Parkway, dear people, this is a Bible. The written word of God. The only true and trustworthy written record of God's self-disclosure. The only infallible rule of faith and practice. The only authoritative guide to all of life. 
divinely inspired, totally sufficient, complete in and of itself, and to be interpreted according to its context and purpose and in reverent obedience to the Lord who still speaks it in living power. (laughs) In it, we learn of God and of humanity and how God created man and woman in his own image for his glory to enjoy fellowship with him. And then came the fall, whereby man being tempted by Satan, humanity turned from God, sin entered the world, and with it so did death, spiritual death. And the rest of the Bible, everything after Genesis 3, is about what God has done and is doing and will do to redeem us from sin and death and restore us to himself. Today we begin a brief series that describes this amazing feat, this victory that God has won for us and for His own glory. We will spend these next four Sundays in Ephesians chapter 2, this amazing passage that proclaims the message of God's triumph in our lives, His triumphant work in our lives. We, hear this, we are trophies of grace. We are living, breathing demonstrations of the supreme victory that God has achieved in us and for us. For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. We are His workmanship, reads verse 10. We are created. We are recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. But before we get to verse 10, we need to understand verses 1 through 9. We need to see the progression of what we were without God and what we now are because of God. This passage reveals the truth that The truth of what we were by nature and who we become by grace. And so I just want to read it together with you. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. And then this morning, we'll take a closer look at verses 1 through 3. This passage will be our passage for the next four weeks. We'll just break it up into four parts. Ephesians 2. 1 through 10. And you were dead, and you were dead. In your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. 
but God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. Father, we just ask, well, we thank you for this amazing work, this victory of all victories. And we ask that you would impress these truths upon us even now in these divinely appointed moments. Amen. How are we to assess the human condition? How are we to assess the human condition? The answers vary, but, but they typically fall into one of three views. The first view suggests that people are basically good. Not perfect, of course, but generally good and improving. Only slightly flawed, but evolving into something better. And the problem with this view, of course, is that it ignores the obvious. In that, if we are only slightly flawed and evolving into something better, then these small flaws should have been eliminated by now. Instead, people are as depraved and wicked as they have ever been, perhaps even more so. The second view admits that things aren't good. That we are sick and unhealthy. That there is indeed something seriously wrong, but it stops there. It doesn't go much further. It doesn't explain why and what to do about it. And as any doctor will tell you, just admitting to poor health isn't enough. Without understanding why we're unhealthy, the diagnosis is incomplete, and therefore the road, to the road to recovery is vague at best. Well, the third view is the biblical one. And it agrees that the human condition is not good, but it makes a complete diagnosis. We are not merely sick, it says, but dead. Dead as far as our relationship to God is concerned. Not simply flawed, but enslaved. Not generally okay, but in fact objects of divine wrath. This is what we were. This is what we are without God. And this is what we learn in these first three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. We 
were dead. The Bible draws a very clear line between these two states of being, life and death, and there are no third options. There's no middle ground. Everyone alive today, everyone who has ever lived, is in one camp or the other. Either you are alive to God, which is life itself, or you are dead in your sins, uh, and therefore dead in the fullest meaning of the word. They look around. Maybe this is you. They look around and they see plenty of people, men and women alike, who who make no Christian profession whatsoever, who even openly deny Jesus Christ, and yet those people appear very much alive. Superstar athletes, brilliant scholars, Beautiful and talented celebrities, people who seem to have it all by worldly standards, people who many of us, many others aspire to be. How can we say, how can we be so bold to say that that people with these such celebrated lives are not alive, but in fact dead? Because in the matters that matter most, that is precisely what they are. They may have fantastic bodies, fantastic minds, fantastic personalities, fantastic bank accounts. They may appear very much alive in these ways, but their souls, the very essence of their being, are completely and utterly dead. John Stott says, We should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are alive. They're separated from God alienated from the life of God, as, as chapter 4, verse 18 says. Here in verse 1, Paul says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Trespasses refer to willful rebellion, the crossing of a known boundary to those moments when you know right from wrong. You know right from wrong, but you willfully choose the wrong. Sins refer to Missing the mark. Like firing arrow after arrow, but falling short of the target every time. And the target in this case is God's purpose for us, the very purpose for which we were created to glorify Him, to enjoy Him, to fulfill our God-given mandate on earth and His heaven. Our problem is that we are sinners, and this very first verse makes clear that we were dead in our sins. And we were enslaved as well. I think that's what verses 2 and 3 are getting at. You see, the Bible likens our life to a walk, to a journey, a road down which we travel. And without God, we're on the road 
that leads to certain destruction. Paul says that we followed the course of this world, that we followed the devil and the devilish spirit of the age, and we followed our own fleshly passions and carried out all sorts of carnal desires. And it's not only that we follow just once or twice, but, but the sense here is that we continually followed, that, that we followed consistently. In other words, we were enslaved to this way of life. We were enslaved by the world. You see, the way of the world stands opposed to the way of God, and without God, you were captive to the world. You followed its course. You listened to its voice. From a young age, you're exposed to these worldly influences, to these messages that affect how we live and and relate with one another and how we view God and the things of God. And we're caught in this ever-flowing stream as our values are shaped by the world. But the world is fading away, Scripture makes clear, and friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we were likewise enslaved by the devil himself, or the prince of the power of the air, and then by the devilish spirit of the age, or the spirit of disobedience. And certainly this isn't hard to recognize. Our news reports remind us of it daily, of the presence of evil in today's world, of the fact that human beings everywhere are depraved, degenerate, and disobedient to God. The spirit of the age, the spirit of the age says... It's perfectly okay to redefine marriage, this sacred union created and established by God itself. The spirit of the age says that boys and girls, little boys and girls, elementary school, junior high school, High school, boys and girls should share school restrooms and school locker rooms. That one gender should not be excluded from another. Essentially, that decency and privacy no longer matter. The spirit of the age says that abortion is right and should be, should be assumed as a right. And that selfish ambition is worth celebrating because after all, it's survival of the fittest. On the surface, on the surface, at first glance, it may seem that, that your sin and mine is not as egregious as others, but without God, listen, we are no less depraved. For as I was reminded even this last week, even the best men are mere men at best. Because we're enslaved by our own fleshly passions, verse 3. And flesh here means, means not our skin, but our, our fallen sinful nature. As fallen people, we reveled in our own desires with little thought of God, catering as much as possible to our every whim. With every impulse, with every urge, with every notion, we sought our own way. With full speed abandoned, we pursued our glory instead of God's. You know it's true. Like lemmings, we seemed oblivious to our danger and we just rushed pell-mell toward destruction. Held in bondage. Held in bondage by the very same desires that promise life but deliver death instead. 
if you have ever struggled with addiction, you know what it is to be enslaved by your desires. If you're prone to overeating, to gluttony, you know how your cravings can do you in. If you're into pornography, you know the bondage it brings. If confessing your wrongs or extending forgiveness when, other wrong, when others wrong you is, is hard or unacceptable to you, then you are imprisoned by your own desire to be right. If you're always seeking the approval of others, you know how enslaving that can be. If you're into spending money, decorating and redecorating your home, for example, but never satisfied with it, you know a captivity of another sort trying to fill the emptiness of your own soul with things that cannot satisfy the soul. And this isn't unique to you. Certainly it applies to you, but it applies to us all as well. It says we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Without God, our desires take over. These passions deceive us and ultimately destroy us. Without God, we are enslaved by the world, enslaved by the world from without and by our own carnal desires from within, enslaved by the devil and the devilish spirit of the age that operates between the two. We were dead and we were enslaved to the very things that bring us death and thus we were condemned. It says we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The human problem, you see, runs much deeper than what we do or don't do. It gets to who we are. It points back to the fall itself. We have a nature that rebels against and opposes God. One passed down from Adam through the generations of mankind to the present day, like, like, like being born infected with fatal disease, we come into this world marred by sin and under its sentence of death. We are sin-stained so that even our best efforts are indelibly tainted. The evidence is crystal clear, and we have been found guilty in the courts of Almighty God to whom we must each give an account. Listen, without God, we are justly condemned and under His just wrath. And so the passage has moved us from the human condition to the wrath of God. People today give little thought to the wrath of God. Poo-pooing sin as though judgment was not around the corner. Going about our merry way, crafting a God of our own liking who never gets angry and will never call us to account. But that's not the God of the Bible. 
The Lord will swallow his enemies in his wrath, and fire will consume them. Psalm 21.9 The day of the Lord comes, cruel, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord in the day of his fierce anger. Isaiah 13. And God's wrath is not merely an Old Testament teaching, as some suggest. The New Testament is also replete with warning. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Romans 1.18 Because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.5 God inflicts vengeance on those who do not know Him. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? And yet the Scripture pulls no punches here. God's wrath is spoken plainly and without ambiguity to warn us and to prompt our repentance. And were we to experience this wrath for but a moment, we would immediately turn and cry for mercy. Like the rich man in Luke 16 who died without God, we would instantly realize the error of our ways and beg and plead with God for another chance. But it's too late. Roughly 56 million people die each year That's about four and a half million people every month. Just over one million every week. And most, most will not die of natural cause in their old age, just falling asleep. Most will die unexpectedly without much warning. And those who die without God will die in their sins and bear the full weight of God's wrath towards sin. And I ask you, 
Is God unjust? You know, we affirm, we celebrate justice, don't we? When we see or hear of someone who wrongs another, do we not cry for justice? And the more severe the wrongdoing, the more fervent our cry, and when justice fails, we don't like it, we hate it. It cuts us to the core, it incenses us, it causes us to rise and shout, Not good! No more! Because there's something in us, even in us, that longs for righteousness to prevail. It's that part of us crafted in God's image that remains even after the fall. Well, God likewise longs for righteousness to prevail. And hear this, He guarantees that it will. So if we are offended, if we are offended when one sin-ridden human being wrongs another, imagine the offense against God who is holy, holy, holy. Without fault, without even the slightest defect, perfect in all his ways, each of his attributes and the sum total of his attributes is infinitely perfect. And thus our sins, our sins are deep offenses, not a small thing. Our sins are deep offenses against him who is without sin. So, so God is not unjust and he does not punish sin because he enjoys inflicting punishment. Hear this. He punishes sin and brings sinners to justice because it is the right thing to do. It is consistent with all that is right and just. I contend that God is worthy of our praise even in His wrath because in it He guarantees a future that's entirely free from sin and its wicked consequence. Hallelujah. And in this, in this, In this, this freedom from sin, this freedom from its wicked consequence, in this is the love of God. I want you to hear that God's wrath and God's love are not enemies. God's wrath is not like ours. It's not quick-tempered. It's not uncontrolled. It's not arbitrary. It's not subject to His mood at the time. Rather, it is consistent and measured. It is consistent with His steadfast love. Even the most widely known verse in the whole of Scripture, uh, a verse that espouses the love of God, alludes to God's wrath. You know what it is? For God so loved the world that He gave 
his only son, so that whoever believes in him, in Jesus Christ, in his only son, will not perish, but have eternal life. And it is in this perishing of those who do not believe and trust in Christ, where God's wrath is revealed. And later in that same chapter, John makes it even more clear, saying, whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, for the wrath of God remains on him. You see, Christianity declares that God's love was actually demonstrated in the greatest gift ever given. It was actually demonstrated, it was revealed in the greatest demonstration of His wrath in that He gave His Son, Jesus Christ, in love for us on the cross. It was on the cross of Christ where God's wrath was levied in full measure upon His very own Son, who Himself is God and has died as our substitute willingly. God's righteous outrage towards sin was unleashed upon Jesus, who knew no sin, but still bore our sins in our place. God's love did not cancel His wrath towards sin or the sinner, but rather redirected it and placed it in full measure upon the great sin bearer, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so let us no longer think that God is not about the complete and utter eradication of sin and its effect. He is. And he proves it because he himself has paid the ultimate price. And anyone, and anyone Anyone who, who looks to Jesus by faith and entrusts him or herself to Jesus will find in Jesus full forgiveness of their sins from God and fullness of life with God. And therefore the cross, the supreme object of God's wrath, is where his love and justice meet. You see, this is the main point. I'm getting ahead of myself. This is the main point of verses 4 and following, which we'll consider in the coming weeks. It begins with the words, But God... This, this is who we were. This is what we did. This is, this is the road we were on. But God... You were dead, you were enslaved, you were condemned, you were powerless to do anything about it, but God did something for you. That's why the Apostle Paul can write to these Ephesian believers in the past tense. They were dead. They were enslaved. They were condemned. But they no longer are. And neither, and neither, and neither are you.
if you have come to place your full trust in Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all and Savior for all who embrace him personally. Because God is rich in mercy. And because God's love is is great. And because God's grace truly saves. You were, you were, you were children of wrath. But now, through faith in Christ alone, you are a child of God. So I want to do something unique this morning. We've heard teaching from God's word, and I want us to now hear some testimony from God's people. I want you to hear from someone. Someone this morning who can speak to this personally, to this transformation that God has achieved in his life. And likewise achieves in ours. So I've asked Jeremy... I used to think it was Gothier, and then I learned that it's Goche, which is not at all like it's spelled. But I've asked Jeremy Goche to share his story. Jeremy's been with us for about a year now, about a year. Barbara Meyer's grandson, Lyle and Donna Brown's nephew, Dustin, Aaron, Saren Brown, cousin and um, he's got a story of God's amazing grace Jeremy why don't you come on up here sermon's called um, Trophies of Grace and brought about ten trophies of grace today down. I did my best uh, attempt at a testimony to put it together. We are very busy all day, every day up there. Um, So just bear with me. Um, There's some people that played a bad part in my testimony and I'm not going to throw them under the bus or, uh, but I will point some parts out that happened to me, but it's not to make them look bad. Um, like Wayne was preaching about, um, we're all children of wrath until God's grace saves us, and there's still time, they're still alive, but they don't know any better. Um, so I'll start. Uh, I'm going to start at 12 years old. I am a lifelong addict. Uh, I had a pretty decent life at my grandparents. My dad left when I was four years old, and we moved in with my grandparents. And I remember a decent, really good, loving environment with my cousins and just normal life. Uh, Then my mom and I moved out and tried to do it single parent, two boys. Single parent working all day, two boys at home 
to get into whatever we could get into. And so the first time I ever took a substance or any kind of mind-altering thing, it was uh, it was one of those big old Costco-sized bottles of uh, rum. Uh, we didn't have much food in the house, but we always had rum. Uh, so I wrote a suicide note and uh, drank the gallon of rum as quickly as possible, hoping I would not wake up. Uh, this may have been a cry out for help, not sure yet um, what that was, but for the next 20 years, that was my approach with drugs. I didn't want to wake up again the next day. <clears throat> um, from morning till night, when you're an addict, your whole life is consumed with how to get enough drugs to do to not wake up the next day. When you're numb, you're doing all right. I took advantage of, I lied to uh, beautiful people um, just to get a place to stay, money, um, whatever it took. My number one goal was drugs at anyone's expense. Uh, I worked when I needed to. Uh, my whole checks went to drugs. I became a head chef uh, up on Hazel and Folsom at a place that was called Garbo's, uh, but I had a thousand dollar a week oxy cotton habit and I was living with my grandma at that time. Um, from my grandparents house at the, around the age of 22, I moved down to San Diego to stay with my uncle and uh, I don't remember the drive, I was on methadone, pills, most drugs, I was on most of them. I woke up at their house in San Diego with the Jeep on the back of my U-Haul and uh, there I was. The addict was in San Diego. I thought I left him in Sacramento, but he came down there. I uh, started growing weed down there, hydroponics, uh, going across the border to sell weed in buckets of home. Uh, lots of money, lots of guns, lots of danger, lots of stupidity. Uh, <laughs> I did save up enough money selling drugs to get a house with my brother in Denver. Uh, about the age of 27, 26, 27, I moved out to Denver from San Diego and got a house. And there was drugs. And it had progressed to bigger, different drugs, strip clubs, uh, drugs, cocaine, lots of things. I did serious drugs when I was younger, not in a serious way. I think the first time I did meth was uh, 13 or 14. My brother was four years older than me, so he started, I started. Um, in Denver, about the age of 28, which is six years ago now, um, I started using heroin, and I got introduced to uh, to needles. It was a whole different kind of high. Um, I shot up heroin for about three years in Denver and we lost our house. Uh, my whole life was just stealing, getting money, driving around all day, sleeping in weird hotels and whatever. Um, I got an infection in my hand from shooting up heroin in my hand and uh, I went to the hospital and Almost lost my hand, but uh, they did surgery and got the staph and strep infection out. And from the hospital, I stayed there a week. I called my mom and said, Mom, I'm in the hospital. 
uh, need a place to stay. And we ended up driving from Denver all the way back to Sacramento, full circle. And there were all my friends. Before I even checked in with my family, I checked in with a few dealers and old dealers that I hadn't seen for about a decade and got what I needed because I was withdrawing by the end of the trip. I, uh, my brother and I went through about $100,000 in a few months on just little balloons of heroin uh, from a car accident settlement we were in. So the addiction was high, the withdrawals were serious, the time frame was shrinking between my need or fix or whatever you call it. Uh, in Sacramento, I, I decided to get off of heroin, so I replaced it with drinking. From morning till night it takes away the withdrawals a little bit but I got kind of uh, good with needles in a horrible way uh, so I started shooting up meth um, when you shoot up meth you become very messed up <laughs> uh, <laughs> they call it meth induced psychosis you hear things that aren't there you see things that aren't there you uh, it's pretty sad um, so that was like my life before and now uh, there's a moment of conversion there's a moment um, I just got little notes and uh, to pr try to provoke thoughts here uh, I became such a mess that all my family said goodbye you can't be around here um, the family that wasn't courageous enough to say goodbye because they were kind of doing it with me. Um, they decided to go up to Placerville. And uh, um, I had a dealer up in Placerville, and I would get dope and park up the street and do it. Uh, so one day, I had a car. I had just moved out of my mom's. My mom had moved in with my grandparents, with my brother. And uh, I parked up the street. I tried to steal a flashlight, got caught. Uh, went back to the car, lit a candle so I could do the drugs, and ended up nodding off. I had been up a week or two, so uh, I was going in and out. But I woke up and two flames all around me in my car. Everything I owned was in this car. And uh, I tried to get out the driver's side door, and it was kind of welded shut. There was flames all around me. I kicked out the passenger window, dove out, and... Um, all my stuff burned up. My brother Scott calls it my barbecue moment. Uh, <laughs> so anyways, um, there was my burned up car in this area and uh, my mom and brother took me up to uh, up there and pretty much drove off on me in Placerville. Uh, I was a big, I, I was a mess so um, not really too mad at them about that. Uh, and that's when my journey began in Placerville. I had a dope dealer up there, a burned down car, the clothes on my back, January 2014. I was in the woods. Uh, it was cold. I didn't know what to do, where to go. I was spun out, hearing things, running from shadows, uh, people who weren't there. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I found old homeless camps with just garbage piled up. Uh, used some things I found in there to stay warm and remember it raining, I kind of wandered around for weeks out there in the woods. Um, I walked till 
the bottoms of my shoes had worn out and my feet were bleeding and hurting. I was dehydrated and hungry. I wasn't eating or drinking out there. Uh, and all of a sudden, half my body kind of just started tingling and I just sat down and I tried to reach to my left and I go to the right and I just, I don't uh, know what was going on. Um, but I fell down, I was freaking out. I was hyperventilating and all of a sudden I stopped breathing. Um, and from my lips to the rest of me, it just started going tingly. I blacked out. And then all of a sudden, just like all that pain, all that stuff I was trying to kill away with drugs was just gone, just peace. And all this life is done with, finally, I don't care what's next. And it's black. And all of a sudden, I hear, get up. And then breath was breathed into me. It's still, um, yeah, get up. Just get up. I don't know what that entailed. It's just get up. Get up. And then breath and life. And I come to and paramedics coming to me. I guess I was in the middle of the road with rain. And uh, some of the residents had stopped by to see what the scene was all about. But uh, it was me. Anyways, they took me to the hospital. And I, uh, I was crazy. So they took me to mental health. I was diagnosed as 5150 with a meth-induced psychosis. Um, mental health dropped me off at a place called the Upper Room in Placerville where anyone can go in there and eat, sit down at a table, and they, they wait on you, they serve you food, they, they treat you like you're something special. And I think they're special. It's, it's a beautiful little ministry thing they do up there. Uh, we caught the bus that night to Green Valley Church up there where something called the nomadic shelter system, so homeless people go to a different uh, church for shelter each night. It's like a community of churches that open up their doors for the community's homeless to to get convoyed in there from around different parts of the city. Um, and my first night was at Green Valley. I slept up where this uh, now is a big cross where I used to sleep in the corner. Uh, I just felt get up meant like get healthy, uh, get it together, and then get to work, you know, just doing whatever, I don't know. But uh, Christ-like services was a day shelter at that time where you stay the night at a church and then they drop you off at Christ-like and you lay around there and do whatever you do. There's a pastor there named Bob and he very politely and gently goes around, or used to at that time, and says, uh, hey, you wanna come into a Bible study? And I'd say, no, Bible study, come on. Man. <laughs> I'm homeless, why would I go to a Bible study? Um, he's very patient and uh, finally I asked Bob finally uh, so this all started January 2014 probably towards the beginning of March I, I asked him I was like if I was going to read this Bible what, what do I read he said read the story of Joseph and uh, he says somewhere in Genesis so that night at Green Valley Church I asked them for a Bible and I opened up the Bible for the first time in my life. Um, and I think in Genesis 2-7, it talks about Adam being formed and how breath was breathed into him and he became a living being. And I was like, what? <laughs> that happened to me. <laughs> okay, all right, so there's something to his breath. And I believe Pastor Wayne said about a month ago that uh, he remembers the time when it, it felt like the Bible had been written just for him he would sit around with his family, and all of a sudden, it was for him. And 
I knew there's, I never read a book before in my life. I could never focus. I could never re retain anything I had read. And this Bible that breath was breathed into and breathed out of, I found my home in this Bible. Um, and it was written just for me. I hope you guys have experienced that. It's, it's, uh, so I, I go through Genesis. I get to Joseph. I'm like, oh, Joseph got a bunch of brothers. Yeah, I, I, I was so mad at my brother. Um, but they sold him for uh, to the Egyptians for uh, 20 pieces of silver, and that's exactly what happened to me. My, my mom and brother drove off on me, uh, drove straight to my drug dealer's house and got a 20 sack of crystal meth and went back to my grandparents' house at night and like got rid of the problem and got what we wanted. And uh, it, to the number, and, and I, I, I felt the pain of Joseph, but I, I love my brother. And uh, I, I felt his pain. I could feel the things around him when I read it. It was so alive for me. Um, and then to see in somewhere in like Genesis uh, 45, when Joseph finally reveals himself to his brothers, uh, they're messed up. They, they're like, what? He shouldn't be alive. And he ended up being their rock, you know, because he, he knew that God was out in front. And it wasn't their fault. They're just used to, so he could be out in front of Joseph and he could preserve them as a remnant. And then we have Israel. And, uh, <laughs> And then in Genesis 50, 20, what people meant for evil, God meant for good to save many people's lives as it is this day. I'm here with 10 people today that, man, I've had the privilege to stand next to and watch grace save their life. And I don't, I wouldn't do anything else. Um, I read through Genesis. I haven't put a Bible down since then. Um, <laughs> There is no idle time when the Bible's written for you. You know, what used to be idle time is now me and God. I, I make little picnics. I put the blanket out. I get my refreshments and notebook, and I get down. Um, so that was my little conversion moment. Oh, I also found out later that uh, when Paul, Saul got knocked off his horse, uh, Jesus said, get up. You know, and it's very biblical. It's get up. It's it's symbolic. It's more than just like quit laying down. It's get up. <laughs> it still echoes in my bones. Uh, it felt like there's work to do, and I kept asking pastors, what, "What's the work I got to do?" And one pastor pointed me to John six twenty eight and twenty nine. The the work of God is this: to believe in the one He has sent. And so I've been reading and believing, and I've been working, and and but this get up has transformed into other avenues uh, through my life. Um, in the in the since last Mar or March of 2014, day shelter stopped. Training center started at Christlike. Uh, I've been at I counted last night. I've been at 16 different locations um, at campsites with people uh, who are the first three version or verses of Ephesians 2, and who I was and. I've learned to just sit in the middle of them with my Bible, live with them, let them see hope in me, and maybe, who knows what God will do with them. But I go where God needs me to go. I'm led by God. I don't ever get too comfortable in a house. I've camped in the National Forest for long periods of time. We're moving today uh, 
two, we're shrinking down into one house. We were at three different locations at Christlike, and now we're just, you know, sifting through and shrinking down. And so when I get back up to Placerville today, we're moving again, and I'm okay <laughs> with it. Um, three spots in the National Forest, a trailer for three months. I did live with some people for eight months, uh, had a job for six months, and I was like, this is boring. I've done this before. I'm going back to Christlike. And, um, Three hidden camps. The police don't like the campsites up there, which is similar with Sacramento here. I mean, we're just a mess everywhere we go. Um, trying to figure that out. I don't know. Uh, it, Christ, like, I have a few titles. Um, I got really good at just owning what God's got for me as a nobody there, as just with no privileges. I, I just, uh, you know, I have responsibilities now that come with little titles and stuff, but I've learned all I do is just serve people all day long. All day long, all night long, I wake up and it starts over again. Uh, I, I, I don't, yeah, I serve. That at any time you are used in uh, ministry of God, you, you just serve all day long. That's your job. That's what Jesus did. He says, I did not come to be served, but to serve. I loved that sermon last week. That was awesome. Um, Am I over time? <laughs> Sorry. So, uh, yeah. I, the one story, like, um, I, I learned with the people I'm at at Christ, like, my story, I don't have much to cry about or complain about. I'm, I'm living with a 24-year-old right now whose dad, I asked him if I could use him today, and he said yes. His dad handed him a fully loaded needle of meth at 13 years old because he had been dabbling in his dad's meth, who he always left on his dresser. Um, man, uh, it's messed up. There's something off there. And now he's 24, sitting in Bible studies. I live with him. I, I sleep next to him. I wake up with him. I, I, um, I love him. Uh, it's not always drugs that land people in a spot. You know, like I've known quite a few teenagers that just age out of foster homes. And uh, I'm with one today that's um, 19, and he's not a drug addict. He's just you know, he wasn't perfect in whoever's eyes, and they just said, time to go on. And we live with these guys, you know, they're, they're broken in so many different ways, and they're so young, and thank you. You know, I know we are over time, but I, I just want to say, some of you can echo this story. I've shared this with Jeremy, and, and we had a laugh about it. You know, in my time with Don and Barbara and Lyle and Donna and even Dustin and Andrew and Chrissy Brown, you know, just over the years, you, you talk, you're at functions together, and you talk, and I would always hear about this crazy cousin <laughs> or this crazy nephew or this crazy grandson. And, and, and the things that were shared were truly crazy. And then now we just see a life that's been redeemed. And that's why we do what we do. That's why we live the life we live, because 
in Christ, we have been redeemed. And your circumstances may look vastly different than his. But you are no less dead. You are no less enslaved. You are no less condemned. And, or but God said, get up. And he made you alive together with Christ. And so how do we respond to these things? I mean, I think that if you are, if that's you, if you are now with God, no longer dead, no longer enslaved, no longer condemned, should not your first response be one of endless praise and thanksgiving to him? And then should it not be one of joyful, willing obedience to him? I'm yours, God. Whatever you want. And then should it not be a life that's lived as an open book before others that says, look what God has done. Look what God has done. There is hope in this hopeless world. And his name is Jesus Christ. Look what God has done. And let me tell you what he can do for you. I mean, here we've been talking about fulfilling the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. I just want you to know this is what it's about. It's about changed lives. Now, I don't know. But maybe you're sitting here today and you don't know the life of God. But you sense God working. You, spent, you sense something beyond you that's taking place right now in your life. You can, you're dead in your sins. You're enslaved to your own passions, condemned justly before a holy God. But Jesus Christ sets the captives free. And he has... He has taken your punishment in your stead. And all he asks, as Jeremy reminded, all God asks is believe. The work of God is to believe on him who he has sent. Will you not believe today in Jesus Christ? As God quickens you, will you not turn from going your way to go his instead? Will you not confess your need and just call upon Jesus Christ as Lord. And if you will, you will be saved. Father, thank you for the time we've shared this morning. Thank you for these holy moments and for these opportunities of, of, of where you just reveal yourself and you reveal your goodness and you reveal your grace and you call people to yourself. I pray that you would encourage the saved 
this morning and save the lost. And I pray that you would make us to be a people who walk with Christ and bring this good news with us wherever we go. We bless you through Jesus Christ our Lord, this one through whom you have blessed us for all eternity. Praise his name. Amen.